Thanks for joining the Capital Church podcast channel. For more resources and to learn more about Capital Church, please visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at Well, I'm, I'm glad you made it here uh, today. Uh, how many of you were here last week? Okay, many of you were here last week, and I just want to thank my father, Pastor Ken Wild, our founding uh, pastor, for that incredible message on uh, commitment, community. Uh, man, we're really excited about this Social Kingdom series. How many of you have uh, been here in this sermon series? Just show me. Okay, many of us. Have you been blessed? All right. Um, man, this is a, a series that is shaping uh, my wife and I's vision on how to do life, and uh, it's a seminal thing that the Holy Spirit's doing in us, and so I hope you're being blessed. And uh, over the next month, we're going to be talking about specific practices on how to do life together. Next week, please come. I'm really excited to talk about being a people of promise over preference. And so we're, we're excited. I'm excited for that message. Uh, but I'm going to get into uh, our talk here really quick. Uh, if you could turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I just want to share just a few uh, thoughts with you. How many of you love the Bible? All right. This is verse, if you need to bring your Bible, we have it up behind me on the screen. This is verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all members, everyone say members. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, everyone say spirit. It's kind of riffing off of Ephesians chapter 4. If you haven't read Ephesians 4, it's powerful. It's, it's a breathtaking look at uh, the unity and the bond of peace that we have as followers of Jesus. And so Paul is kind of riffing off of, okay, who has the spirit? And he's talking about the, kind of the large-scale vision of the church. And he says, for in one spirit we were all baptized. Everyone say Baptized. Uh, we, we talked about this. The Greek word for bat, baptized is baptizo, right? It means to be fully immersed. It's associated with an, an, an image of a sunken ship in the ocean. And so that is our life before God. We are baptized not just into Christ, the Messiah. We are baptized into what? One body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And I love this. And all were made to drink. How many drinkers do we have here today? Should I clarify? Not pina coladas, right? Garth Brooks, we love you. But hey, uh, come on, in the summer, you're, you're, man, you're really thirsty. Let's say it's a summer day. It's really hot. How many of you love lemonade, right? So we're made to drink. What's that word is evocative. It means to imbibe um, a drink. We are to imbibe of the Spirit. Now, let me just say this really quick. Some of you are like, well, I don't feel like my life is like that and I'm a follower of Jesus. Well, here's the good news. We don't live by our feels, right? Martin Luther said 500 years ago, feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving, but one thing I do is I stake my life on the Word of God. So we don't live by our feels. We live by faith that this is available to us as followers of Jesus. Uh, Verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body, right? 
The ear should say, what Paul is doing is he's telling us that our life is summed up in King Jesus, right? Uh, And he's giving us a metaphor to describe our interdependence together. And this is what he says as as we continue. I think it's in verse 16. And the ear should say, um, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. Turn your neighbor and say, you belong. So if the whole body were an eye... Where would be the sense of hearing, right? Could you imagine just an eye walking around, right? An ear walking around? That's not human, right? You call that a monster. You call that you're on drugs or whatever. Let's move on. But that's not what it means to be human. So if the whole body, Paul continues, if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Verse 18, but as it is, God arranged, I love this, God arranged the members in the body over the next several weeks. We'll talk about this. Each, I love it, each one of them as he chose. So each of you have access to the Spirit because your life is bound up in King Jesus, right? We talk about this all the time. N.T. Wright says what is true of you is also, or what is true of Jesus is also true of you. So in the kingdom of God, there is no social hierarchy where you got a few pastors on the top that are blessed And then the lay people, they lay around, bad joke, and they're not blessed, right? There is no hierarchical arrangement of blessed people and not blessed people in the kingdom of Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, right, you are blessed, you are forgiven, you've been given the spirit, you've been given the age to come, the future is yours, you have power, you have anointing, right, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if all were a single member, Paul continues, I think we're in verse 19, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. Can I get an amen to that? And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. That there may be no division, everyone say no division, there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. I know we've been repeating things, but could you say that together? This is what Social Kingdom is about, this series. It's about living our life together, not living our life alone, untethered from community, right? We are, as we talked about two weeks ago, we are a family. Like we're all bros and sisters in Christ Jesus. So Paul continues, if one member, this last clause, if one member is Honored, all rejoice together. And everyone said, I want you to bow our heads, close your eyes. Father, we thank you for uh, your word today. Lord, I thank you for your strength. We thank you for what you've done at at our camps, what you're going to do in our junior high and high school camp this week. Lord, we just bless all our young people. Lord, we thank you. Yes, they are our future, but they're also our now. And that, God, you have something powerful for them In Jesus' name. Lord, we bless everyone in this room. Lord, we thank you for your grace on their life. Lord, we thank you that you're doing a a, a unique work. 
in this church. So we say yes to you, Jesus, and we thank you, Father, for blessing America's team in Jesus' name. And all the Seahawks fans said, all right, I gave it to you. Amen. Amen. Um, hey, I, I, this is kind of an iteration of my message at camp. It's going to be a little bit different. Man, I love camps because you could just say whatever. So I might come in a little hot today. Like, I don't know if it was the Holy Spirit of drugs, but I was crying, I was laughing, I was screaming at people. So you might get a little bit of that today, who knows. Uh, I am a little tired, I'm raising 50 kids, as I like to say, so I don't know what I'm going to be talking about. But let me just start, um, how many of you watch TV? Not a trick question, no one's going to judge anybody, you watch TV a little, just maybe a little TV, right? Okay. My wife, she's, uh, she loves reality TV shows, she loves the, uh, the cooking competitions, she loves Kardashians a little. That's like her guilty pleasure every now and then. Like I try to talk to her about that, but she doesn't listen. So we're working on a relationship. Um, but uh, I, I, when I watch TV, I, I'm just ESPN, straight ESPN and a little bit history channel. And I think it's the history channel. There's this one show. Um, usually I pray 10 hours a day. So, you know, but what I do, right, I just did that. Um, but when I do watch uh, TV, uh, I, I go to, yes, obviously ESPN, but in this History Channel, uh, there's uh, this new show called Alone. Have you seen it? Okay, so it's fascinating. It's 10, I think it's 10 trained survivalists that are placed in competition on this island in the Arctic. And so if you haven't seen it, it's, um, man, it's a one big social stinking experiment. It's about, okay, how long can you survive? I'm fascinated with it because if you put me on this show, I'd be dead in three hours, right? <laughs> Somehow I would figure out how to kill myself on accident because I, I just, and all those who, when they go camping, they love a hotel and they love to play golf, said amen to that, right? Um, but the show is fascinating. I've watched, uh, I think, about five, maybe six episodes. And in every episode, we're talking trained survivalists, Right? Um, they love, they're a little bit off. They love to live off the land, kind of like Joel King, right? And so um, they, but in every episode, they, at least one of them, has this moment of clarity. It's fascinating to me. And usually this is what they, they say um, after they experience this full range of emotion, right? One, one dude actually had, I, I think, a psychotic breakdown. I'm not joking, he killed like his squirrel, it was a friend, and he started, he started crying, I'm crying, and I'm just like, what is, like, he has this psychotic breakdown, and then this is what he says, and this, this dude, man, he, you could tell, he could live off the land for a long time, and this is what he said, I just want to go home, I want to be with my family. It's funny, in every episode, every train, we're talking 10 train survivalists have said the same thing. They just want to be with their family. They want to go home, right? So why are we talking about this? Well, because I think in a, in a way that's an instantiation of the crisis that many Americans are experiencing. I, I'll even say it bigger. I think America is in the throes of a spiritual crisis and it's structured around homesickness. I think, it's, I think it's, it's, it's deeper than that. I think a lot of, of Americans, even a lot of American Christians, 
experience loneliness in their everyday life. Uh, my, my family and I, we went to Seattle last week, and we had a great time. It took us nine hours to get to Seattle. We had a big van. We packed in our 50 kids. We stopped at every stinking city to go to the bathroom. It was miserable. My son Quincy, how many of you love Quincy, right? So Q, he's like, he's our emotive kid. He's very dramatic. I love it because he's going to change the world one day. Um, he probably asked us 50 times, Dad, what are we, and if you're a parent, you can totally relate to this. Dad, what are we going to get to Seattle? We really wanted to see his grandmother. So we kept on saying, hey, Q, it's, it's going to be a while. It's gonna, it, I know it's taken a long time. About two hours out from Seattle, and Q, unsolicited, he's in the back row, goes, Dad, and he kind of shouts it. He goes, I'm so lonely. Right? And, you know, we had been talking the whole time. How many singers, when you go on a, like, on a trip, you love to sing, right? We're singing songs. None of you do. Okay, what's wrong with you? Uh, we're playing games. Like, we're connected as a family. I'm not a distant father. I'm a good father. But Q's like, Dad, I got to get there because I'm so lonely. Man, I just think Q, and I just, I, it took everything within me not to laugh. But I honestly feel like that's where so many people are at in the church. Not to say in, in um, America, but in the church world. There are a lot of people that come on a Sunday. They're, they're connected. We kind of know each other's names, right? Um, we're connected on Facebook and whatever your social media platform is, and we kind of do our thing, but we don't know the benefits of community. And we're, we're experiencing this sadness, this Loneliness that has affected so many, not just um, Americans, but so many Christians. In fact, um, one pollster um, took a poll of pastors, took a group of pastors, and they just asked them one, one question. And this is the question. What is the number one spiritual problem that they have to speak to in any given week? And 75% of them said, without question, we are speaking to an epidemic of loneliness. People are lonely, we don't even talk about it. People are devastated by loneliness. And this is the spiritual crisis that we're in. We don't know how to belong. We've lived our life alone. We've bought into the myth, I'm going to talk about this, the myth of hyper-individualism. Because of that, we have prioritized success over relationship, which has led to this epidemic of lonely people. Not only do we, we don't have the skills or the art of, of belonging, we don't know how to love. We don't know what community is like because we're radically untethered from each other. And everyone said amen to that? Do you agree that that kind of describes where we're at in our culture? I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but Alexis Day um, um, Tocqueville, if you're a history buff, you're going to love him. He said this as he described um, American-style individualism which in his words was the defining American trait. And he said, if American-styled individualism is left to itself, it will be the end not only of America as an empire, but the world itself. And this was how he diagnosed the problem of loneliness, et cetera. Uh, one Canadian psychologist in 1940-41 in, uh, actually did a survey of of those who lived in, in London. So yeah, the London Blitz and the Nazis were, were um, bombarding uh, the city. 
Obviously, this was during World War II. And uh, what was fascinating, this Canadian psychologist observed that the rates of depression went down uh, during the Nazi bombardment and then went back up to normal levels after the bombardment. So it left sociologists like befuddled, like, okay, do people living in London, do they like being bombed, right? Obviously, that's not the case. They concluded that the bombing it created a sense of community. It brought people together. People felt they were a part of something larger than themselves. They had this experience of solidarity. Have you ever experienced that before? If you went to the Garth Brooks concert for a temporary moment as you were singing Pina Colada and Friends in Low Places or whatever, right? You were probably high-fiving or hugging a stranger. I saw that, like, throughout. I, I didn't, yes, I did. I went to the Garth Brooks concert, okay? I have to admit. My wife forced me, all right? Um, there's something about solidarity and having something larger than yourself, right, that brings you together. So we have this story of alone, right? Alone is a picture of where uh, America is at. People are living alone. People are living uh, lives of, of desperation, anxiety, and depression. They're untethered from community. And you're, you're going to hate me for this, but there's also another TV show that I think does a really good job of describing what I'm going to talk about here pretty soon about our life in Christ Jesus. It's called Stranger Things. Have you heard about Stranger Things? So, two of you love Stranger Things. Um, okay, okay, I see. Um, st Stranger Things is fascinating. If you don't know what the premise is, you have strangers who become friends because the world needs saved, right? You got monsters, you got the upside down world. The world is, is falling apart at the seams. And you have, and this is what I love it, it's a social experiment as well. You have, you got the cool kids, like one kid, great hair, blue eyes, right? Everybody loves him, he plays ball, right? And he, at the beginning of the story, has nothing to do with these nerds. These nerd, like middle schoolers, like three of them or four of them. And uh, they love Lord of the Rings and they, all this kind of stuff, they're bullied. But it's through a series of events where the world is in need of saving, where they all come together. You got middle school uh, kids coming together with high school kids, you got cool kids coming together with um, non cool kids, nerds with whatever, athletes. They all kind of come together. There is no socioeconomic like, hierarchy in this story. And that's what makes Stranger Things so strange. Because in this story, what I love about it, it's not just the monsters and kind of this, the cosmology of Stranger Things universe. What I love about it mostly is how you have a group of, of kids who had no relation to each other. They're brought together. They were strangers. They become a family. And it's through this family that they save the world. So why are we talking about Stranger Things? Because Stranger Things, as, as I was watching it a couple, couple weeks ago, uh, or a friend, right, was watching it, and they told me about this. <laughs> so I'm just riffing off what he told me, right? I realized that Stranger Things is a knockoff. The Stranger Things universe and what you see with family and all this socioeconomic, like, um, um, upside-downness that takes place, all of that is a knockoff of the Christian story. Now let me just say this really quick. Stranger Things, in terms of strangers becoming a family, will never happen outside of Jesus. 
right? It's, it's the myth of, of progressivism and this kind of social utopia. If we could just get the right education, we can bring everybody together. Well, we've been trying that for a long time. And I'm sorry, Republicans aren't going to hang out with Democrats, right? We, we live in a sharp, vertical polarized world where we've been, our, our, our social life or the fabric of our life has been torn apart in dramatic ways. The world cannot give you what stranger things says it can give you. It's only in Jesus that we can come together. It's only in Jesus that we can have people from different walks of life, different ethnicities, different sorts of chemistry and personalities. They're brought together in King Jesus, and they're made to live their lives together as a family. So my premise uh, today is that you cannot live your life by yourself. We were created by God, listen to me, we were created by God to live together as a family, as brothers and sisters, where we are blessed with the Spirit, where we learn to commit to each other. Not, not only do we live in community as a family, but it's God who gives us the Spirit. And as God gives us the Spirit, we then go out into our world building for the kingdom of Jesus. And as we build for the kingdom of Jesus, yes, we are stinking blessed. But that blessing doesn't stay with us. We are blessed to be a blessing to go and to love the hell out of our city and to serve and to give our lives away for those who do not know Jesus. Are you hearing me this morning? Am I, am I too hot? Right, because it's going to get feisty here pretty soon. Here's the problem with loneliness. You have these large urban centers, right? They're known as a breeding ground for loneliness. I mean, think about it. You're surrounded by millions of people, right? They're all strangers. Every, everyone's trans, transient. You come and you go. People are experiencing a life of aloneness. And, and by aloneness, I, I mean we're talking alienation. They feel like they're on the outside, right? They feel like they're strangers to what's happening, right? They feel like they're aliens to uh, their community. They're un, radically untethered from family and from friends, and they're trying to make it uh, in this world outside of Jesus, C.S. Lewis, he uh, gives us a description of hell, and he says hell and the, the torture of hell is not like just a literal fire. The torture of hell is that people progressively move away from each other. Isolation, because we were not designed to live alone. Isolation is the very def stinking definition of hell itself. Hell is living and shouldering the burden of life by yourself apart from anyone else. Uh, clinical psychologists will tell you loneliness is a sad reality of modern life, right? Um, loneliness is the greatest pathology, in, another in the words of another psychologist, the greatest pathology of our age. Mother Teresa said uh, modern, the modern Western leprosy is loneliness. In fact, loneliness has a physiological effect on your body. It's worse than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It affects us. It transforms us. It transforms our perspective, how we relate, obviously, to each other. So how do we diagnose the roots of loneliness? I'm just going to give you just a meta-level look 
and then we'll uh, close with what the Bible says we're supposed to do. Um, loneliness is inextricably connected to American-style individualism. American individualism is our national mythology, right? Um, Hyper-individualism, as I mentioned before, is as American as the 4th of July, Garth Brooks, Pina Colada, Apple Pie, Dallas Cowboy fans, whatever, right? It is, it is baked, in other words, into our social consciousness. You have, and we've talked about this before, can I just give you just a little bit of history? Because I know you want it so bad, right? You want, oh, I want history. Um, 19th century, you have these transcendental writers and poets, Emerson, right? He, uh, he talked about self-reliance. Uh, you have Thoreau, he talked about civil disobedience. Again, the emphasis was on the self. You have Whitman, who wrote the song of myself. It was all organized and structured around this uh, rugged individualism. So to give you a definition of hyper-individualism, it's pretty simple. It's prioritizing the self over conformity to any group. In other words, we choose who we want to belong to. The most important thing is not my family, my friends, my church, or an institution, or my politics, my party, whatever. What's most important is myself. This has led to self-help talk, right? Be true to yourself, the, the age of authenticity. We've talked about this before. Um, Alexis de Tocqueville, he defines this American-styled individualism as a calm and considered feeling which disposes each citizen to isolate himself or herself from the mass of his fellows and to withdraw into the circle of family and friends. With this little society formed to his taste, he gladly leaves the greater society to look after itself. So it's the prioritizing of our self and freedom and our choice over groups, church, family, friends. The legacy of hyper-individualism has led to an obsession for success and achievement over relationship. In fact, in the words of, of one scholar, Ronald Englehart, he said the correlation between income and success, and he's riffing on hyper-individualism, is surprisingly weak. So there's a surprisingly weak correlation between income and and success and happiness. In fact, what we're coming to find out that well-being has nothing to do with prosperity. Can I get an amen? It has everything to do with a sense of purpose. And yet, as, as hyper-individualistic thinkers, it's been baked into our social consciousness. We value more than anything success and achievement and I got three million followers, I must have, like, that means I'm something. Right? Our value has been so connected because of this hyper-individualistic age, is so connected to achievement. And yet achievement has hollowed out our spiritual life. In the words of one scholar, David Myers, he wrote in his book, American Paradox, he said, we have soaring wealth but diminished joy. We have big houses but broken homes. We know how to make a living but we don't know how to make a life. And then he goes on, he riffs, the long-run wealth, or long-run or long wealth is like health. 
He goes, its utter absence can breed misery, right? This is not a, a Jeremiah or a tirade against wealth or money or success. If you have money, if you have success, if you have wealth, there's nothing inherently wrong. What we're saying is if that has become your ultimate end over and against relationship, that is when you will lead or that will lead you into a, a form of spiritual bankruptcy. But this, this um, health of being related to wealth uh, is so important because having um, wealth doesn't guarantee happiness. Happiness, or I like the word joy better, in the words of David Myers, seems less a matter of getting what we want than of wanting what we already have. That's, man, you, that's food for thought. You can think about that. This isn't to say that you can't have more. Can I get any man? This is just, this is just a description of how our appetites have been shaped by success. So in the age of plenty, our spiritual hunger has um, proliferated, right? And this has led, um, and, and, and I've, again, I'm, as the older I get, the more I realize that what I want isn't what I really want. It's funny how uh, I'm realizing more and more how I've been socially conditioned into this stuff. Remember, as a young man, I used to think, and it was just in my subconsciousness, that I had to get out of Boise, and I've shared this before, and I had to make something of my life in order to be fulfilled, to have value. And I grew up in a great family. My mom and dad were great, and I had a great church. But this belief was baked into me, and I fell prey to it. And so many of us here in this room have, have capitulated to, to this idea, and we've allowed it to shape even our relationships and how we see ourselves in the church. We'll talk more about that soon. But Isaiah 55, verse 2 says, and Isaiah cries out, this is a haunting passage. He says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligent, diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Jesus in, Mark, in Matthew chapter 4 says, Man shall not live what by bread alone. Bread is good. How many of you love bread? You love eating. You love bacon. Let's, come on, you love maple bars. Come on, you're not a vegan, okay? You love life, right? That's bad. I just, Jesus said, man, shall not live by bread alone. What's bread? Bread symbolizes all the blessings that God gives you. There's nothing wrong with blessing. Can, are you hearing me this morning? Please hear what I'm saying. This is not a, a, a tirade against success or achievement. This is simply um, putting things into perspective. Jesus said, you shall not live by bread alone, but you shall live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's powerful. You shall live by every word, not just success. In fact, Henry Nouwen said, when we have come to believe in the voices that call us worthless and unlovable, then success, popularity, and power are easily perceived as attractive solutions to our desolate condition. In other words, he's saying it's self-rejection and loneliness that drives us, if we're not careful, to make success, achievement, our appearance, money, I have this house, I have this car, whatever, our ultimate end. Jim Carrey, you probably never heard of him, he's an obscure guy. Um, he tweeted, I think maybe you saw this two, uh, two, two years ago, right? He goes, I wish everybody had money and fame. 
And once they got it, they would know, again, this is my um, paraphrase, then they would know how it's not what they think it is. They would know what it's like. In fact, success will never give you what only God can give you. And here's the thing, when it comes to an ultimate end, we have to make a decision here today. What do you want? Do you want to make money as an ultimate end? Do you want to have success as an ultimate end? Or do you want to learn to give your life away? You choose. You choose. It's funny, like, I, I've been listening to a lot of preachers, and, um, and I think there's nothing wrong with going to, to podcasts and stuff like that. Unfortunately, I kind of, uh, the preachers that we listen to, I know the inside story, and I got to be really honest with you. My heart is grieved. Now, this is where I'm coming in hot, okay? I'm grieved over our preaching. I'm grieved. Because preachers will get up and they only give you half the story. They'll say, oh, it's just about my blessing, my healing. It's me, 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 me. And there's nothing about giving your life away and being a part of a community of brothers and sisters that are empowered by the Spirit. You see, if a preacher, and this is how you discern, even my preaching, and any preacher out there, if a preacher is just focused on you as an isolated individual, and is just focused on your personal happiness, he's preaching self-love. What does Jesus preach? He preaches self-giving love. Jesus goes around and says, oh, you got to take care of yourself. And we believe in taking care of yourself, right? Like, we should exercise. We should take a, do you like these, these side notes? Like, I just got to make sure we're clear here. We should take a shower, right? If a massage, you like to get a massage, that's a great thing. If, if yoga is your thing, that's great. Whatever. This is not to say that we, got, we can't take care of ourselves. This is simply to say that when Jesus went around announcing the good news of the kingdom, he said, repent and then believe, and then he starts having these conversations with his disciples about, okay, if you're going to learn to follow me, you're going to have to what? Pick up your cross and deny yourself. And it's when you learn to give yourself away, that is when you'll find life. When you learn the art of losing yourself, in a larger story than your simple success or your small lopsided dreams. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. But if that's the most important thing, I promise you, I promise you. I've talked to many people this last year that have hundreds of millions of dollars in their bank account. And they are empty and they are broken. And they know success and fame and power cannot give them life and value. Why, why is giving your life away, why, does that, why is that the pathway to, um, to joy? How many of you want joy? Well, it's because uh, C.S. Lewis said this, every time you step away from yourself, you're actually taking a step away from spiritual ruin. 
Because the definition of sin in the Latin is homo incurvatus in se. What is that? Humans curved in on themselves. That is where we go wrong. We are designed to live life within community. So to step away from ourselves towards someone else or towards Jesus is to step away from spiritual bankruptcy, to step away from a hollow, empty, bankrupt life. In fact, joy is on the other side of self-forgetfulness. So when you learn to give your life away, you just stop analyzing yourself. Many of us, our problem, you know, when it comes down to it, we just self-analyze our stinking self to death. Right? We, we just obsess and we compare. We go on Instagram. And I know it's so cliche now. I even hate because every, everybody talks about it, but it's so true. We compare our lives with someone else on a social media platform. We compare, we analyze, and we, we prop up or we justify our value based on um, what we see on social media. And so some days there are people that have better vacations than you and you're depressed. And then other days there are other people that don't have as good vacations as you and you feel great, right? What is that? That's just the problem of the human heart. We analyze ourselves. C.S. Lewis, I love this, said, man, when you get in touch with God, when you get in touch with Jesus and his spirit, you will experience the infinite relief, the infinite of relief of getting over your dignity. You step away from yourself, in other words, and you live for Jesus and building for the kingdom, and you do it together, a part of a family. Can I get an amen? So, Chris, really quick, I just got a few minutes. Are you still with me? Uh, how does this success, right, how does this hyper-individualism, how does it lead to loneliness that you're talking about? Well, hyper-individualism reduces us, in the words of David Brooks, to a mass of talented individuals competing with one another, right? So it organizes society into an endless set of outer and inner rings, we got people that are making money, whatever, so they must be the most important. The people that are not making money, they must not be important. So we have a sharp verticality that's created. He continues, character uh, is no longer a moral quality um, associated around love and service and care, uh, but it's a workplace um, trait organized around grit, productivity, and self-discipline. In other words, we live in a, a meritocracy, right, where the talent and the achievers rule and run the world. The problem with this is that if you have a community built on talent and achieving alone, it will only lead to competition and rivalizing each other. Can I get an amen to that? Now, hear me. I love competition. I talk about this ad nauseum. Man, if you want to compete with me, I'll own you. I will defeat you in any sport, <laughs> any board game, video game, whatever, right? I love competi competition. On vacation, I just have to compete. That's how I get out of myself. It's just kind of a weird thing. So this is not per se something against competition. This is how we reduce people to competitors. In fact, David Brooks tells us that hyper-individualism, because we value success and the high achiever, has led to um, these shadow communities called tribes. Tribes, in other words, are a dark parody of real, authentic community. Tribes are structured, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but tribes are structured 
around a mutual hatred of someone else. Individuals come together, right? They're whatever, whatever political affiliation, right, that they have. They find someone maybe online. They build a community around a hatred of someone else. It's violent. We, they assume that we live in a zero-sum game, right? Resources are scarce, so we got to fight all these other groups. Well, um, in the kingdom of God, we have a community and a family not structured around violence, not structured around a mutual hatred, but it's structured around a mutual love. Can I get an amen to that? But this is what hyper-individualism leads to. It leads to this crisis then of loneliness. We are alone. We are desperate. We feel it in our bones. You can feel it in the city. I came back from, you can call me crazy, but I came back from camp. And when I entered the city, I could feel it. I could feel the spiritual climate. People are, they have nice homes and they're driving nice cars, but man, they are so stinking lonely. Their spiritual life is a zero. And they have everything this world can offer, but they do not have joy. So what's the answer? What's the answer to all of this? What's our deliverance? How many of you want to be delivered from this? What is our deliverance? It's pretty, pretty simple. This is, kind of sounds like an uh, 80s love song, but we have to surrender. Everyone say surrender. We have to surrender first to our love of Jesus. Surrender. We got to surrender. Not just kind of give some of our lives to Jesus, but we have to give everything in surrender to the love of Jesus. You can't, I know this is kinda, kind of a draw the line in the sand message, right? This might be a little feisty for you, but just hear me, just hear me. You can't straddle that line of, okay, my ultimate end is success, and you wanna, Keep that as you follow Jesus as an ultimate end. You can't have both. You can give yourself to Jesus, and yes, he'll bless you, and yes, we believe that God will do great things in your life, but if he's an ultimate end, and Jesus teaches us how to lose our life, you can't be in this, on this side and on the other side at the same time. You have to make a decision today or over the next several weeks as we talk more about community about what side you're going to be a part of. I don't know about you, but I want to be on this side. I want to learn the art of giving my life away for people. The most important thing as your lead pastor is not, it's not my job to grow this church. It's not my job to get butts in the seats. It's, my, it's not my job to like motivate you to do something. It's not my job to create energy, right? So you can have an emotional experience. That's not my job. In fact, it's not me who grows the church. It's not our elders who grow the church. It's not even you who grow the church. It's God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that gives the increase. But the problem is, as I close, a lot of churches have fallen prey, and I love the church, hear my heart. Love the church, but if, if we're not careful, I'll say this is a better way of saying it. 
We, if we're not careful, as churches, we can fall prey to, we gotta get numbers, we gotta get attendance, we gotta get this, we gotta, we gotta, right? As opposed to, okay, 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 God's the one who's gonna give the increase. Our job is to, to love, to serve, to take care of each other, to figure out what, what being a brother and a sister actually means. I mean, showing up, not just waiting for a good message or hoping that we play Waymaker, and if we don't play Waymaker, we're going to leave depressed. Right? What's our job? Our job is to come not just every Sunday, but every single day. And it's, 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 it's organized around, okay, what can I give away when I show up on Sunday, when I show up Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday at my place of work, in my small group, at my dinner party. It's not about just receiving, and it is. We've talked about receiving, but it's also learning the art of giving everything away. Acts chapter two, you can read it, first four verses, says that everyone received the Spirit. So what's the answer here to hyper-individualism? God saved the world through Jesus, his death, his resurrection. Acts one, Jesus ascended, right, into heaven in his bodily form. So Jesus is not a spirit in heaven kind of running some distant location, right, apart from earth. No, Jesus in his bodily form went into heaven and his embodied state is running all of creation right now. He is at the helm, in the words of one scholar, he is at the helm of the cosmos and he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords and he is in charge of world history, he's in charge of the White House, your house, the crack house, stupid joke, all that. He's in charge of it all. Acts 2, what does Jesus do? Jesus ascends and on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit descends. And the Spirit is not given to some fragmented individuals. The Spirit is given to a family. And it's through the family that Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who is above death and sin and all the powers to be, it is through this family that Jesus saves the world. So God gives the future. God gives the miracles. God gives the gifts. God gives the power. God gives the responsibility to save and to rescue the world. Not to a few people, but to a family. And you are baptized into this. If you are in Christ Jesus, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you are baptized into his life, but you are baptized also into his body. We are a part, in other words, of something bigger. I have to end. I know kids ministry, they want us to, um, and we need to do this. We want to respect the time, but let me just say this really quick. It's so important that we learn to do life together. One Gallup organization asked in 2007 people around the world whether they felt like they were leading meaningful lives. And what they found out was astonishing. Liberia, they figured out, was the country where the most people felt a sense of meaning and purpose. While the Netherlands, according to David Brooks, was the place where the lowest percentage of people experienced meaning and purpose. Again, Researchers were trying to figure out, okay, why this is, and they realized it was because of the existential urgency. 
in the turmoil of this war-torn country that they were compelled to make fierce commitments for survival. These are the words of David Brooks. They were willing to risk their lives for one another and it was that sense of solidarity, living for something bigger than themselves, that they experienced joy and meaning and purpose. So as we close, we don't just gather on Sundays as random people, as scientists, as bakers, as vegans, as meat people, as cowboy fans and cat fans and whatever, cat fans, what? Cat people, right? There's no such thing as a cat fan, right? We gather as a people, we gather as a family, we gather and we're part of a larger story. This larger story is connected with Jesus and we're gonna talk more about this over the next several weeks. In other words, we are stronger when we are together. We are stronger when we are together.